Okay, well, good morning again. It's 10.44, so I'm going to take the opportunity of one minute to make uh, another quick announcement. And my colleague, uh, Mark Hauser, is that those of you who have yellow name tags, be sure just to check in with him uh, on a daily basis. Before each session. Okay. And uh, also a reminder then at the end of this we'll have lunch upstairs where we had breakfast. It's a lovely place, same place we had dinner and breakfast. And then we'll start again promptly at 1.30. Now, I'm going to give a series of three lectures. They're related, I can't say they're fully integrated because I'm going to deal with some different topics. But this first one, I've talked origins of state and government. I'm going to focus on the origins of the state understood sociologically, so not looked at juridically or philosophically, but the sociology of the origins of the state. The next presentation, which will be after lunch, will be on the history of freedom. And that's going to be a bit more philosophical, so looking at the idea of liberty. And then the third one will be part two of Origins of State and Government. I'm going to focus on government and talk about the way in which power has been tamed and brought under law and why that's a very important part of the libertarian uh, project over the last 5,000 years and ongoing. So let's start then by thinking about what is a state. But before that, what do people think states do? And a lot of people think that the state is responsible for everything. They believe that order is not possible without the state. They believe that everything you have was created by the state. Professor Cass Sunstein, who had held a very important uh, position with the Obama administration, uh, put it very neatly, uh, in a book he wrote, government is implicated in everything people own. If rich people have a great deal of money, it is because the government furnishes a system in which they're entitled to have and keep that money. Now, what they argue, in effect, is an interesting misapplication of economic ideas. I think it's reasonable to say that we have what we have because of the existence of law and legal norms and the behavior of other people the fact that uh, people don't steal from you all the time, that they've internalized the norm of respect. It's a very important part of our enjoying civilization. When you think about it, each one of us has the capacity to cause enormous harm to other people without getting caught. If you were the kind of person who wanted to do that, you could walk outside with a bottle cap uh, down the street with parked cars and cause tens of thousands of dollars of damage to people, and the chance of you being caught are really, really pretty small. If you're fairly deaf, you just walk by and scratch along the car, you could cause enormous damage. Uh, most people don't do that, and so we do owe a great deal, in some sense, to each other, that we don't harm each other more than we could if we really wanted to. But that's not what these people are arguing. They're arguing, in effect, that because the state, as they argue it, the legal system, which they identify exclusively with the state, I'll say why I think that is mistaken, is responsible for our enjoyment of so many good things, then it is the only factor of production. 
and everything is attributed to that. This is really a crude form of classical economics before the neoclassical or the marginal revolution in which we began to understand that different things make contributions on the margin. That that is where we should be looking for value analysis. For the classical economists, they wanted to ask, what was the source of all value? And the answer that was given was labor, the labor theory of value. All value came from labor. And therefore, some argued, the so-called Ricardian socialists, that everything should belong to labor. And of course, the next step was to argue that a worker state would then own everything. So we know the direction that that went. And others have argued similar kinds of arguments. You find the one thing without which it would be not possible to have value, that is the source of all value, and all value is attributed to that. But of course, we could say the same thing for farmers. They didn't grow any food, we'd all die. So therefore, farmers should own everything. And if a doctor saves your life, if you had a, uh, an infection, now you're alive because of the doctor. The doctor owns you and everything that is now made possible. Right? That's a primitive form of economics. And we've gone beyond that with the marginal revolution, that we value things according to their contribution of the marginal unit of something. So the government may, in fact, make a contribution, but it does not follow that it is the source of all value. So we heard that again, though, not too long ago from another very important person, a professor of law, uh, who reminded all of the entrepreneurs and parents and engineers and musicians and others, um, you didn't build that. And that famous statement, if you've got a business, you didn't build that, Somebody else made that happen. Now, to be fair, the president's statement was preceded by something. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. But even so, it showed a gross misunderstanding of the nature of value. It's true, if there wasn't a road to your business or your shop, you couldn't do business with other people. Customers couldn't get there. But the suggestion that President Obama was responsible for that, and therefore we owe everything to him, is unlikely. Actually, people did pay taxes if it was a taxpayer-produced road. They paid for that. They produced the wealth, and they paid the taxes that built that road. It wasn't given to them by some other social body called the state. But in his view, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. I have to tell you, if you want to find one statement that turned a number of people very strongly libertarian who were building small businesses, that was it. My nephew and his wife were putting in 60-hour weeks of sweat equity into building their business, actually constructing all the pieces and the parts and so on, well raising uh, three uh, exceptionally energetic small children, uh, and they had smoke coming out of their ears. Uh, when they heard the president say that you didn't build that because, in fact, they did build their business. It is there because of that. But this is an example of this mentality. It's not just in some obscure professors. It permeates the political system. Everything you have is because of the state. That is a very common view. So the presumption is that all surplus is attributable to the state. But that can't be right. 
And if you think about it from a historical perspective and just a logical perspective, without a surplus, you couldn't have had a state in the first place. Right? Because the state has soldiers, judges, police, bureaucrats, ministers, kings, and so on. Someone had to produce a surplus to be able to feed them. So the surplus has to precede the state. It is not possible for the state to precede all the surplus. The argument is logically incoherent. There had to have been some kind of surplus, however small, that originated in some form of social cooperation without the state before the state itself could have been possible. So the argument cannot be right in its robust form. More modest form looking at the contribution on the margin of government is a different matter. But the idea that everything you have is because of the state is untenable. But it is found all throughout intellectual discourse. You find it in academic philosophers, rather thoughtless uh, lawyers and economists like Kay Sunstein and Barack Obama, uh, and obviously politicians who believe everything you have is theirs. It is theirs to take and confiscate. Let's ask, what is a state? And the canonical definition given by the German sociologist Max Weber is the one that now is standard in sociology. It's an interesting one to parse out. It is that human community which successfully lays claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence within a certain territory this territory being another of the defining characteristics of the state. So it does not follow then that all forms of violence are the state. Robber bands and so on are not states. Uh, some mugger on the street is not a state. For one thing, they rarely claim legitimate physical violence. Sometimes they might, but rarely do they give you a moral argument why you should have to give them your wallet. They just say, give me your money or I'll shoot you or I'll hit you or I'll do something other, some other bad thing to you. So it's a human community that successfully lays claim. So there might be rival claimants for this, but the ones that have successfully laid claim to a monopoly of legitimate physical violence, and it's territorially delimited, delineated. So that means that we wouldn't characterize as states per se previous roving robber bands or uh, 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 tribal structures moving about and so on. The state has a territorial existence, and we now refer to the modern nation state infused with the idea of a nation and the myth, and it is a myth, that the nation created the state. In fact, the historical experience in almost all cases is the state created the nation. So the classic example of this, you think about the French nation state, that emerges after the French Revolution and the terror uh, that came about at the end of that and the mass genocide. At that time, only about 50% of the population of the Kingdom of France spoke the French language. About half spoke other languages. They spoke Breton, very, uh, that and one or two other Celtic languages. They spoke Provençal and Occitan and Catalan and a variety of other a Germanic and Romance and Celtic languages. So only about half spoke French, as we would identify it as the language. 
But French came to be identified as the nation of France, and that was a creation of the French state. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And you can see that consistently where nation states are there. The, the myth, the unifying myth, is that there's a nation that pre-exists the state, the reality is the state creates the nation. And in many cases, the national language, interestingly enough, is, a translate, is the word in one of the languages for army because they developed the language of the army of the ruler. And that was a common patois developed out of a multitude of languages with the language of command. Now, if we take that as our foundational understanding of what a state is, we can look at how states develop. But let's go back to the question of wealth. And as why do people have wealth? Where does it come from? There were some other most interesting sociologists writing earlier in French. These were very strong libertarians in the early 19th century. Uh, the ones I really like, Chose Comte, not to be confused with Auguste Comte, who was a socialist and a lunatic, but uh, Charles Comte, Auguste was an authentically strange, uh, perplexing person and highly influential. But Charles Comte and Charles Dunoyer, and also the historian Augustin Thierry, who was a really brilliant historian. I'll talk about him in a later talk. And as Charles Comte put it, there exist in the world only two great parties. That of those who prefer to live them from the produce of their labor or of their property, and that of those who prefer to live on the labor or property of others. This may sound familiar because this characterizes America as well. So this is not just in the far distant past. You can enjoy wealth by creating it, working hard, delivering value to other people, goods and services. And it can do, be in all kinds of things. You can be an Uber driver. You can work at a gas station. You can start a company, you can have a new idea, you can develop a software product. There are millions of ways in which people add value to the lives of others in voluntary exchange. Or you can come to Washington and instead of investing as my nephew and his wife have done in a business with all of their work and their savings to create value for their neighbors, and voluntary exchange, you can invest in a law firm, which doesn't really do any law. It's all retired congressmen and Hill staffers. And you can pay them money, and they'll help you qualify for the value and wealth created by other people, which will now be transferred to you. The Exim Bank, which was just recently reauthorized by the Senate, is a perfect example of that. It's not a bank. It's a slush fund. It's money taken from you that will be given to Boeing and other companies because they'd rather not spend the money marketing their products abroad. Well, boo-hoo. I feel very sad for them. That's part of producing a product is marketing and selling it to your customers. But instead, you're going to have to pay for that in subsidies from this non-bank, the XM bank. Or you can do it in a more honest fashion. You can get a revolver, walk out on the street, pistol whip someone, and take their wallet. And really, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, you're taking from other people what is not yours, and you're using force. In the one case, 
the robber with the pistol is at least more honest. He doesn't say he's doing it for your own good. He doesn't say this will make the nation greater. It won't grow GDP. He's just taking your stuff. And they're, they're honest, and I respect them <laughs> for that. Now, we have, though, this organization of theft. A uh, great German sociologist, Franz Oppenheimer, wrote a book, which you can get in English translation. It's called The State. Being a German sociologist, it is a tiny extract from a giant book that he wrote, uh, which I, uh, is interesting. But this was the really key part that people really found wonderful, the state. And he said there are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man requiring sustenance is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his desires, work and robbery one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. And he said the state is an organization of the political means. He called the forcible appropriation the political means and work and exchange the economic means. So we can exchange, and by the way, exchange creates value, as Oppenheimer and others knew. It's not just work. When people exchange things, it's because one wants what the other has, more than that person does, and vice versa. Value is created just in the simple act of exchange. So work, productivity, and exchange create value. Now, as I mentioned, though, there have to be some economic means before there's even the political means. This robust view of John Rawls and Cass Sunstein and Barack Obama cannot be right. It is impossible that the state has to precede all surplus above mere physical survival. It is not coherent. You have to have something, some economic means, that precedes it. So we think of hunter-gatherer bands. Uh, they actually don't generate states. The surplus they produce is too tiny to produce a Department of Agriculture, for example. Uh, slash and burn agriculture generally does not also produce much of a state. Uh, for that, you need some subtle means of production in agriculture. So normally, hunter-gatherer bands we do not associate with states. And even today, the small groups of people who live in hunter-gatherer bands could not be said to have states. So there are small groups in some parts of Africa, often on the margin and brutally persecuted by the states that exist there that are trying to wipe them out because they're useless to them. They can't tax them. And so these people are really on the very margin of existence. Uh, and in some parts of uh, South America as well, and a few very remote parts of Asia. But these groups are largely being, said to say, exterminated, uh, not just because their lives are difficult to maintain, but because governments find them inconvenient. Uh, they're on land. They don't produce much value that can be taxed, and so they're uh, being systematically wiped out by predatory states. But the other group that comes about is not just agriculturalists, but pastoralists. So people who live from uh, animals, cows, uh, buffalo, oxen, horses, uh, and so goats, and so on. And what happens when you develop states, typically it comes out when these two groups come into contact with each other. So pastoralists, by nature, tend to be moving around. 
So when we think about nomadic peoples, these are almost invariably, uh, well, they are invariably pastoralists of one sort or another. Agriculture is a minimal part of their livelihood. And nomad does not mean what it is often taken to mean in contemporary American English. You just wander around aimlessly, a nomadic lifestyle. That's not what nomadism is. They usually have very clear, settled patterns of movement. So depending on the seasons, obviously, in the summer they go up into the higher territory for the grass that's up there. In the winter, they come back down into the valleys because it snows up there. And you can't get any grass. So there are patterns, and we still have some nomadic persons in various parts of the world. Again, they are uh, uh, under threat from states. But if you think about the Sami and the others who uh, travel in the very distant north with their reindeer, and there are some still in Central Asia who have a nomadic life. The Soviets pretty much wiped that out. Nomads, again, were not very popular with communists because you couldn't control them easily. So nomads were forced to settle down. If you look in uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, for example, the nomadic life was largely exterminated under communism. And they, they forced people with extraordinary brutality to settle down and created cities like Frunze, which is named after a psychotic Soviet mass murderer. Fortunately, it was renamed Bishkek, now capital of Kyrgyzstan, after the independence of Kyrgyz Republic. Uh, but these were deliberate settlements by the Soviets to forcibly settle nomadic peoples. And states have done that uh, in many places. And we could also mention in the history of the United States as well. The reservation policy, to some extent, was an attempt to force uh, migratory nomadic people to sit down and then, of course, confiscate as much of their land and wealth as they could. A tremendous historical injustice done to indigenous people in America. But what happens when you develop states is when pastoralists come into contact with agriculturalists. We have a little memory of this in the book of Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel, and of course, the two brothers. But it says, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And that is a little memory of this conflict between keepers of sheep, pastoralists, who are moving around, and tillers of the ground. We have a little echo, a little memory of that. What emerges is typically people who keep pastoral animals, not so much sheep. Sheep are very difficult to ride. But horses coming out of Central Asia is that they are able to establish predatory relationships and systematize their forms of extraction of surplus from agriculturalists. And so coming out of this Eurasian landmass, we see the, the roots of what now we think of as the modern nation state empires of nomads over cultivators. So if you look at some of the interesting agricultural developments, the development of the scythe, for example, this was an extraordinarily important instrument for uh, allowing people to harvest grain and be able to have a sustainable lifestyle as a sedentary people. Uh, people with horses, however, learned that they could take a horse cart put it on the back of a horse, and it's a very good mounted platform for shooting arrows and spears at people. And so people with horses developing the war chariot, this was a tremendous technological innovation, 
allows them to conquer sedentary people because they can get in, shoot, and run away very quickly. They're highly mobile. And so the development of the war chariot, which then, of course, develops in all kinds of ways, and you've seen all those sand and uh, 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 sandals movies uh, from the 1950s where they put on the chariots these scary blades and so on, which generally didn't, that's just for Hollywood. Uh, the main point was it's a place you can stand and throw a spear or shoot an arrow and get away really quickly. And these are devastating against uh, sedentary peoples. And then the development of the stirrup. The stirrup allowed people now to fight directly from horseback, gives you tremendous uh, striking power when you're up above, and obviously a great deal of mobility. This is a, a Sarmatian knight. That gave them the pastoralists, the people who cultivated primarily horses, an enormous advantage over the uh, agricultural or sedentary populations. And so we now see one group conquering another and living effectively at their expense. And it's not surprising that in a great deal of the rituals that were found in the origins of these states, the conquered people were expected to approach their overlords on all fours, never having their heads above you always had to have your head lower. Well, think about the role of the man on the horse. He's up above you. And you had to approach them with a tuft of grass in your mouth, which is to say you were symbolically treated as a cow. You were to be exploited by them. You were treated by them as if you were part of their flock of sheep or cows. Now, the Middle East had an especially a strong role in this regard. And I should point out a very important fact. Uh, all domesticated cats in the world are descendants of Middle Eastern wild cats. And that's kind of interesting. Uh, it also includes my cats. Here they are. Uh, all of whom uh, are descendants of Middle Eastern wild cats. That's rather interesting. All domesticated cats in the world uh, are related to the wild cats of the Middle East. And there's a reason for that. It was the place where people first began to store large quantities of grain. Think about that. When you have large agriculture, because they invested tremendously in um, irrigation and so on, and you have the land between the two rivers, it's enormously fertile. It's not so much anymore, but it was at one time. Most of those uh, uh, irrigation uh, were destroyed by the Mongols. This, is why we think of the area as so parched, but at one time it was not. They have huge amounts of grain. When you store a lot of grain, what do you get? Mice. And what do cats think of mice? They're delicious. <laughs> and one of the things that happened was cats domesticated human beings. They taught those human beings who were smart enough not to shoo them away that they were good for them. Because when you have the cats, they'll eat the mice, and they'll protect your grain. And so cats trained humans over a long period of time to now we tickle them and uh, give them tummy rubs and so on. And we co-evolved with them. Human beings also have co-evolved with dogs. This is one thing that we have to understand, is that human beings were also selected over time for their ability to live with dogs and cats. People who couldn't get along with dogs and cats 
were more likely to have less food because the mice ate them and to be attacked by other predators because they didn't have dogs to protect them. So we evolved in the selection process also to be compatible with dogs and cats. So you see these huge state formations originating, the earliest ones that we have documented in the Middle East, and it has something to do with the enormous surpluses that are uh, produced. I'll talk a little bit more about uh, this uh, tomorrow and the development of certain institutions in the Middle East, and in particular, the very important uh, city-state of Lagash and um, uh, the role of liberty and development of these institutions and the unfortunate conquest of one of the freest societies in the world at the time by the astonishingly evilly named Sargon of Akkad, who developed a, a huge empire in the region. What happens is uh, what Mansur Olson called the transition from roving bandits to stationary bandits. So when you have roving bandits on their horses going around stealing things from other people, uh, they can come in, swoop down, steal stuff, and then leave, and come back six months later, a year later. But it turns out when they settle down, when they become stationary bandits and can monopolize crime, their take increases. As he puts out, they can, if he can take hold of a territory with its population, and keep other bandits out, he can monopolize crime in that area and become a stationary bandit. This is effectively the origin, the, the, the root of state systems is stationary bandits, kings and conquerors of various sorts, who realize that if you come in every so often and loot and burn, they'll fight you. You'll end up burning most of the stuff. Granted, it's fun but there's less stuff to steal the next time you come around. If you settle down among the people or over them, you make a kind of deal. We won't burn and loot you all the time. We won't destroy everything. There's more to steal. They'll actually produce something, knowing that you're not just going to come through and loot it again six months later. They'll get to keep some of it. They'll produce more. And so they decide to become stationary bandits. Now, there's a myth uh, in some of even the public choice literature that rulers have as their goal maximizing the gross domestic product of a country, that somehow that's the sign of their success. That's what keeps them in power. That's not true. It's an interesting theory, just like one sometimes hears, well, the business firm tries to maximize the capital value of the business. So a ruler is trying to maximize the gross domestic product of the kingdom or, or the state. Interesting, but uh, not sustained by the evidence or even the logic. There's a very, very good book by an anthropologist, uh, James C. Scott from Yale University. Uh, he's a really interesting writer. He has many fabulous books. They're quite, let's say, compatible with libertarianism, which he finds uncomfortable, although he's, he understands it, because all of his friends are socialists, and they get angry that libertarians like his work so much. Uh, but he's very friendly to libertarians. He just says it's awkward that he gets attacked by his leftist colleagues all the time. Well, he pointed out states do not maximize GDP. They maximize the SAP, a little bit of a joke in that in English, to be a SAP. 
means to be the one who pays all the bills, the state accessible product. The ruler maximizes the state accessible product, if necessary, at the expense of the overall wealth of the realm and its subjects. This is a very important insight. In the book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is a fabulous book, I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot from this book. Uh, it's, it's about um, uh, upland Southeast Asia, which is not an area I know a huge amount about. I've been in upland Southeast Asia a bit, but I don't know uh, the languages well, or I'm learning one of them, but uh, it's, it's a kind of specialized body of knowledge. But I checked a lot of his footnotes, and they, they were right. Great trust uh, in this book. He spent many years in the area looking at this interesting phenomenon of still nomadic people in some cases and people who are escaping from the state. And he turns our understanding of these populations upside down. People who live on the margins, high upland areas, but also swamps. He talks about swamp areas are normally considered primitive and backward. And we can admit it, we're all raised to think this in every culture. In America, people in Appalachia are called hillbillies. And everyone looks down on them. They're considered stupid and unintelligent and inbred and so on. And also swamp people, people who live in swampy areas. They're considered backward. And anthropologists, for hundreds of years, literally, have said, if you want to understand primitive human beings before civilization, before the state, go live with these primitive people. That's how you understand it. And Scott says this is exactly wrong. It's completely false. These people are not ignorant of states. They live next to states. They are refugees from states. They're the people who got away. And they live under difficult circumstances because they were fleeing from it. So to take a simple example of how he demonstrates this, if you look at ethnographic maps, this is always a puzzle to me, in the Balkans of different ethnic groups, so Romanians, Hungarians, Germans, Kutsovlaches, Roma people, all these small groups, Albanians and so on, scattered around, it looks like someone took a, a pen, dipped it into an ink pot, and just splattered it on the map. It doesn't make any sense. Why are they populated like that? The same thing with Southeast Asia. Just all these little ethnic groups randomly assorted are scattered around. He says, we're looking at the maps wrong. We're looking at them from the top down, and it looks like randomness. Take the map as a topographical map, by elevation and look at it sideways, what do you find? Different ethnic groups consistently settle at different altitudes and different kinds of land. That's quite interesting. So the Hmong, for example, are systematically found in Southeast Asia at roughly the same elevation, the same band. Why? They were refugees of conquerors who flowed through the region. And as he points out, power doesn't flow uphill very well. When conquerors came in, conquering armors, they go through the valleys. They conquer all the people who, who are left behind. And some of them escape up into the hills or into the marshes and swamp areas. And then they displace people who are the refugees from their wave of conquest. 
couple of hundred years before. So you end up with these sediments of different populations at different layers. So these are the people who escaped. And unsurprisingly, we associate them with all kinds of illegal behavior. Moonshining, illegal production of alcohol, in the case of the reviled hillbillies. Uh, it's very difficult for the revenuers to trek up into the hills to get them. And sometimes the revenuers didn't come back when they went up to tax them or to break up their stills. They generate kinds of agriculture, notably what's called swiddening or slash and burn agriculture, for a very simple reason. It's very hard to tax it. States systematically prefer and distort incentives toward the production of crops that are taxable, which means grain in much of Europe, certainly North America, we are accustomed to eating bread, and rice in much of Asia. Why? It's very labor-intensive. The crop is all brought in at the same time, which means you can tax it when it's being harvested. The duke or the king can show up and say, I want my 10% or 20% or whatever the tax is. In contrast, tubers or things that grow under the earth like sweet potatoes and yams, it just sits there until you want to eat it. You don't have to harvest it at some given time. It won't rot on the, uh, 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 on the stem as wheat or rice will. And so consequently, when the tax collector goes, comes up, you just run away. Eventually they leave and you come back and you dig up your yams and tubers and eat them. They develop systems of uh, religion and household management and marriage that make them very difficult to conquer. And this is one of the lessons of the book. I wish that the American planners of our brilliant intervention in Afghanistan had read this book. There is a reason why the mountain people of Afghanistan don't get conquered. No one has ever conquered them. Not Alexander the Great, not the Persian Empire, not the British Empire, not the Mughal Empire, not the Russian Empire, and not NATO. They have developed forms of living together that make it very hard to conquer them. So power flows through the valleys fairly easily. It doesn't move uphill or into marshlands. The consequence, of course, is states have systematically tried to erode these areas of refugee uh, populations. Now, I should point out, it doesn't mean that these are all libertarians living in these mountain areas or swamps. Uh, they may, in fact, engage in all kinds of predatory behavior on their own, including slave raids and other predatory activities. But we should not see them as primitive man before the state. They're people who are the descendants of refugees from conquest, who have developed forms of life that makes them rather resistant to being conquered and incorporated into a state. So as he points out, the state accessible product has to be easy to identify. This is why he argues that rice was systematically uh, promoted by, in Asia uh, by rulers, rice cultivation as opposed to all other kinds of agricultural products, easy to monitor and enumerate, has to be accessible, as well as being close enough geographically. And he makes a very strong case that this is, uh, that the state has influenced very much our diet and all kinds of other things, not because it made us healthier, but because it was easier to tax, more 
of the state accessible product. Now, this isn't just all theory or speculation about ancient states or anthropological field studies. We have a number of very well-documented uh, cases, and we can take a state that in some ways was a predecessor of the American state, although with huge intervening changes, which I'll talk about in my talk tomorrow. Uh, and that is the origin of the Norman state, which is established in the year 911. We have a very good dating for this and a very good understanding. It was established by a Danish uh, pirate, a Viking, by the name of Hrofer. Uh, and here's basically how the story goes. He had been harassing the towns and cities, he even laid siege with other Viking pirates to Paris. Uh, this is a part of a huge outpouring from Scandinavia. There was a gigantic growth in population. One of the horrors of global warming at the time was crop yields increased dramatically, and the population of Scandinavia rose a great deal. It was much warmer than, than it is now there. They had grapes uh, growing in England and in Scandinavia, and I can assure you that English wine is not something to savor today, but apparently it was cultivated there. So there's a big population, and these groups begin to migrate outward, and they go eviking. And that's an interesting word, viking, uh, which we associate exclusively with piracy, actually comes from the Norse word vik, which means a bay, opening to the sea. Uh, why, uh, so Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland, means smoke bay because when the Norwegians came, they saw the steam and they thought it was smoke. And in English, any town or city that has wick at it, like Stanwick and Warwick, or Warwick, uh, uh, that means that there was some access to a bay at it, that, 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 what that comes from. To, to go eviking means to sail out of the bay. Many of them were traders, uh, but of course, they also engaged in piracy. The distinction was not so clear to them. Just you wanted stuff, you could either trade for it, or if they weren't looking, you could take it. And there's a, a poem which I like very much, one of the great Icelandic sagas, Eil Saga, about Eil Skatlagrimson. It's a very interesting figure. It's written by Snorri Sturluson, one of the great Icelandic, Norwegian, Icelandic poets. And it tells a story when Eil is visiting his friend Thorolf, and it says that... Um, he passed the winter there. Sounds really boring. It means nothing happened. They just sat around in the dark in Norway. But in the spring, they got together a longship, and they went out, and they did a great deal of looting, won many battles, and a lot of loot. Then they went to Kurland, which is believed to be the coast of Estonia, for two weeks of peaceful trading, period. Then they started looting again. So they didn't see a distinction between these two activities. It was you loot and steal, then you trade, because those people are pretty tough. You have to trade with them. Then you loot and steal again. Well, these pirates going throughout Europe uh, are harassing the, the uh, coastal areas, but also deep inland. Their ships were, had a very a low draft. You could take them through the rivers, and they could attack anywhere, come in, steal everything, put it on their ship, and sail off. These very small horses, like ponies that they were able to ride uh, into battle, and they were quite ferocious and extraordinarily brutal, extraordinarily brutal. Well, 
finally, the locals say, look, let's just make a deal. You are Hrothfer the pirate. You come in, you burn, you loot, you rape, you steal. Then you come back and do it again. Why don't you just become Duke Rolo of Normandy? And then you can do this a little bit all year long. And it's less terrible for everyone. And he made the deal. And that is the foundation of the Duke of Normandy, which comes from the Northmen. It is the place where the Northmen, the Norse, uh, settled and transferred, changed from being roving pirates into uh, bandits, into stationary bandits. And then from that, of course, comes, uh, not terribly long later, by the way, within about 80 years, they abandoned their Norse language. It's quite interesting because there are several important state formations that come from the Scandinavian migrations. Kiev and Rus, which becomes highly predatory state. Uh, Rus is believed to be uh, old um, Slavic word for Swede. They settled, sailed down the rivers and established uh, their uh, patrimonial state systems of which Muscovy becomes the predominant one. Normandy and several states that emerged from this and then also Iceland. Iceland is the interesting outlier because it becomes much more, you could say, libertarian in the context of the day. They had no, no king in Iceland. From their establishment up until 1264, uh, they said in Iceland there is no king but the law. They had a highly developed law, uh, but no king. So it's a kind of interesting sort of, we could call quasi-anarchistic um, legal system. But Normandy is a highly predatory state. Years later, the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard, William the Conqueror to his friends, uh, makes claim to the throne of England, and in 1066, uh, defeats the English, who had already just defeated the Danes, and were quite weakened, and establishes what later becomes the English state. And from this comes a lot of interesting things. Uh, among them, the English language emerges out of this because English is a mixture, in a way, of two languages. Not so unusual that languages adopt things from other languages, but English is really two distinct languages, Anglo-Saxon and Norman French, being squeezed together. And from this, you get the largest natural vocabulary of any language. I'm told, I've never checked myself, but linguists say English has the biggest vocabulary, bigger than any other. Uh, and I don't mean phony words. In, in other languages, you can make up words, like in German. You can, you can make a word as long as your imagination allows it to be. Uh, but uh, natural, normal words you'd find in a dictionary, and a very simple grammar. So the grammar of English is pretty simple compared to many languages. So I run, you run, we run, they run. Get ready. She runs. That's not that hard. Uh, on a grammatical level compared to Finnish or uh, some other languages. Uh, so we, it develops the English language. In, you can hear the conquest, by the way, in the language. Legal English is full of legal couplets. An order was issued to cease and desist. They both mean the same thing. Why would they do that? It's, English is full of these legal couplets. It's because one word is in one language and the other is in the other. They wanted to make sure people would understand. Don't just cease. You Anglo-Saxons must desist also. And so English is full of those uh, dual phrases. And this establishes what later becomes, what develops into the English state. 
And then later, of course, that colonizes, establishes colonies in North America, Australia, and elsewhere. Now, I mentioned about war and the state. And Charles Tilley, who's a very interesting, we could say, political scientist and uh, sociologist, put it very neatly, war made the state, and the state made war. And I think that is a, uh, the right way to think about this. We see the development of various kinds of military technology influencing state structures uh, very dramatically. All kinds of means of uh, visiting violence on other people, whether it's defensive use of force or offensive force, has an enormous impact on the state. So the military is more significant in this regard than most people think. And it was once believed that war was really the origin of all civilization. Heraclitus of Ephesus, in one of his famous fragments, war is the father of all and the king of all. War makes everything. Some he shows as gods, others as men, and some he makes slaves and others free. So that war was believed to be the origin of all human and political life. And indeed, some people celebrated it. This was not so uncommon. Today, we're a little surprised and shocked when people are enthusiastically pro-war as such. But this is actually... a pretty modern and contemporary view influenced by libertarianism and classical liberal ideas. Uh, Joseph de Maistre, one of the most robust reactionary uh, figures of the 19th century, wars the habitual state of mankind, which is to say that human blood must flow without interruption somewhere or other on the globe. For every nation, peace is only a respite. If you want an antidote to that, I strongly encourage Steven Pinker's wonderful, brilliant book, the better angels of our nature. Uh, he's a good friend of the Cato Institute, professor of psychology at Harvard University. And it is a, a really important book that shows how human violence has been declining. Doesn't seem like it when you turn on the television. We always think violence is getting worse. But the evidence is the likelihood of dying from violence or being exposed to that kind of brutality is declining and has been for a long time. The numbers have gotten bigger partly because the human race is so much more numerous, and that distorts our understanding. But the chance of anyone in the world dying from violence, look at that over the long run, has been falling. De Maistre has been shown to be wrong, empirically falsified. But let's ask that, and it has to do with what I'll talk about tomorrow about the development of government. What are some of the characteristic features of modern states that distinguish them from other institutions? First point is they attempt to bring about a monopolization of law. Now, when I say attempt, they don't actually fully monopolize it. The theory is all law originates from the state, and to the extent possible, politicians try to absorb the legal system uh, into the state system. But as a matter of reality, there's a great deal of purely private law all around us. It's just invisible. No one thinks of it as law. To take an example, eBay has an adjudication procedure. When you have a dispute with a merchant, or if you're a merchant and you have a dispute with a buyer, they have an adjudication process. I've had experience with credit card companies. They have people who look into disputes. I had a, a false billing that should have been $60 and showed up as $660 on my account, and I challenged it. I said, this isn't right. 
Uh, the fault was the part of the, the rental company. They didn't pick up the car where I left it with the key. I'm not liable for that. They looked into it and they said, you're right. We're refunding the full amount and we're going to take this up with the merchant that he won't be able to use Visa anymore if he doesn't monitor these sort of things. So there's a lot of private law. And even something most people don't know, a huge percentage of the fugitives from justice who are apprehended and brought before the courts, courts are not apprehended by the state. In this country, they're apprehended by bounty hunters who have a very bad reputation publicly uh, because of trashy TV reality shows of, of, of people that are very unsavory and not nice. But the reality is bounty hunters bring back more fugitives than government policemen. They are private persons. They are bound by the law. And they are very nonviolent because as private persons, they do not have any kind of immunity. So if you are a fugitive from justice and you have put up a, uh, some bail saying you will come back to the court and you skip bail, the, the bail bondsman wants you back to be able to get his money back. He hires a bounty hunter. The bounty hunter has to bring all of you back, not pieces. And you have to be a completely functional whole. And if you have all kinds of injuries, you can then sue him as a private person and actually bring criminal charges can be brought against him as well. So they don't come in with a SWAT team with guns blazing and a press crew behind them and so on. They find the person at 4.30 in the morning when he goes out the back to urinate behind a tree and they just wait, and they just walk up, clip on the handcuffs, and say, now you're coming with us. They don't like violence and conflict. Similarly, property. If you've ever had a situation where you need to recover property, do not go to the sheriff's department. It's a waste of time. If you win in small claims court, I discovered this. I say, OK, now the government will get me my stuff. Eh, wrong. This does not happen. You're obligated to get it. You have to hire a repossession agent. And they don't like violence either. They just want to go get the thing that's yours and get it back to you. The easiest, least confrontational, least violent manner. So even a lot of the enforcement of law is not by the state. Many people, they just don't understand that. But nonetheless, the states seek a monopolization of law. They want to replace customary law by imposed law, this legislative procedure. Legislation is the only thing people focus on. And if it's just customary law, it must be backward and primitive. They claim sovereignty. And sovereignty means effectively being above the law. That's a very important claim. The sovereign body is defined as that body above the law. Uh, they claim that this is all created by the underlying nation. I think that is falsifiable. Uh, in fact, typically the nation is created by these coercive institutions uh, that uh, hammer through state educational systems, through compulsory military service, and so on, a standardized language, a standardized national identity, uh, and so on. This is still ongoing in many parts of the world and has led to horrific internal wars among ethnic groups. Africa is a very good example of this. European nation states came to very complex social orders in Africa and said, now you are Nigerians when they left. That's what you are. But of course, there are many different peoples and languages. 
Africa has an enormous linguistic diversity. It was staggering uh, that there are languages side by side that have no deep grammatical connection with each other. They're like Chinese and Italian, but they live next door to each other. They have common words to facilitate exchange and friendship, but the languages are unrelated. And here they're told, no, you are now members of this one state, and it mattered who got to be the ruling body in that state. If it's a member of your nation, things are okay. If not, things are not okay for you and your family and neighbors. Uh, they create all kinds of systems of uh, uh, control, weights, measures, compulsory schooling, and passports. I have to say passports are one of the things I find most offensive about the modern state. Uh, people today take it for granted you can't travel without a passport. And you see documents, go to the passport office. Passports are so cool, kids. Everyone should get one. It gives you the freedom to travel. Without a passport, you can't travel. This is wrong. People have traveled without passports for thousands of years. The United States government did not issue them until 1913. They're very, very recent, and yet people have been told passports make you free to travel. No, they restrict your ability to travel. People traveled without passports for thousands of years. All across, in fact, until not that long ago, people went back and forth across the U.S.-Canadian border and didn't think anything of it until later they discovered, oh, I'm not really an American or a Canadian. That actually has been in my lifetime, that that border has been hardened in that way. And birth certificates and so on. I had a experience years ago, I gave a talk, it's probably 35 years ago, but it stuck in my mind. Uh, like Jeff's, I said we should get rid of this and this and this, there's no justification for these programs, and very smart young lady, she looked at me and she said, do you think the government should issue birth certificates? She leaned forward just like a cat. So her ears were sort of flattened back. She was ready to pounce on me. And I thought for a minute, I said, I see the value of a birth certificate, but churches and synagogues and so on have been issuing these for a long time. There are lots of ways to issue proof of birth. So in the absence of a compelling reason, I'm going to say no. She leaned forward. She said, how would you know who you are? <laughs> I thought it was amazing. She could not imagine having a personal identity without a state-issued document. So I don't actually have one. So I don't know where it went. My parents died a long time ago. We didn't have one. I don't know. So when I finally got a passport, I had to get a bunch of people to go with me and say, that's him. And they said, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll accept that uh, because I didn't have a birth certificate. Now I, now I exist and have an identity because I have a passport. Let's look at this question of sovereignty, the claim of the state. Uh, Jean Baudin, who was one of the great theorists of sovereignty, put it very neatly. He said, majesty or sovereignty is the most high, absolute, perpetual power over the citizens and subjects in a commonwealth. It is above the law. That is the theory of sovereignty. A sovereign power is not governed by the law. And he criticized customary law, how people resolve their disputes, which includes common law, eBay law, visa law, or from the visa transaction network, not US government visas, and so on. He said, well, 
Custom acquires its force little by little, and by the common consent of all or most over many years, while law appears suddenly, gets its strength with one person, from one person, who has the power of commanding all. I read that as, I'm for customary law. He sees this as an obvious case for sovereignty in state law. It's power, it's sudden, and it crushes you. Whereas this customary law, which he was opposed, which was the law of most European peoples, grew over time. People accepted, yeah, that works really well, let's do that. And from one precedent to another, spread out. Thomas Hobbes articulated the idea of the sovereign power. It's absolute and indivisible. Absolute cannot be challenged. And as such, it's above the law, the source of the law, and cannot be held accountable. The sovereign power is unaccountable. Very dif different from our theory of constitutional government, by the way, which is a radically different perspective, that government is accountable to at least the Constitution and to other principles of the consent of the governed. Now, we can distinguish external and internal sovereignty. External sovereignty, I think, has some benefits. It diminishes conflict between states. That's why borders have some benefits. It says your army can't go over that line. So I can see real benefits to the idea of external sovereignty delimiting where states can say, in this area we're sovereign, and in that area you are. And I think it's very important to respect those borders. One of the reasons I'm very, very worried about Europe right now is we've seen recently borders changed by military force, first time really since World War II. And I'm thinking primarily of Crimea and now the, the ongoing annexation of eastern Ukraine and, and parts of Georgia by the Kremlin. This is a big change in the post-war legal order. But internal sovereignty, I think, is inherently anti-libertarian or illiberal. It contrasts with the classical liberal idea of a Reichstag, a law-governed state, a law that is itself subject to an accountable, a state, pardon me, subject to and accountable to the law. Now, the state as such is able to engage in things that other institutions cannot do, called spoliation, or in modern American English, the really horrible term rent-seeking. I hate that term. It's a term of art in political science and economics, but it makes people think of the landlord collecting the rent. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, so it's, it's a terrible, misleading word. Uh, exploitation or robbery, I think, are more direct. That's essentially what's going on. And what happens, the way it functions in states, why states have a comparative advantage in doing this as opposed to the criminal with, with a, uh, a handgun who pistol whips you or threatens you, is they can concentrate the benefits of many acts of small acts of theft. Those small acts of theft, the costs are diffused over huge numbers of people. And this generates a gigantic mechanism, an ongoing system of redistribution of produced wealth and value. So take a very simple example. Uh, most people in America do not know about sugar uh, price supports. Who does? Not many people. Well, we keep out lower price sugar produced very efficiently from cane sugar in Brazil and the Caribbean in order to subsidize a very small number of sugar producers who produce cane sugar in Florida and Louisiana, and the rest who produce sugar in the least efficient way known, which is growing beets, and then boiling them down and extracting the sugar from it. 
So that's a very inefficient way to produce sugar compared to sugar cane. You can get it much cheaper. So Americans pay a higher price than other people in the world for their sugar. But it's not that much for every time you have your coffee or tea, you put in a little bit of sugar, it costs you a, less than a penny. That's not very much. But with, I think, 315 or so million people in the United States having sugar with their products, add that up, it's a huge amount of money. And small numbers of producers who get these concentrated benefits will spend a lot of money to lobby Washington to get that. And the rest of us who bear small costs, it's just a lot of us bear it, it's not worth it. We are even rationally ignorant. Most Americans don't know about all of these subsidies to special interests. They're completely unaware of it. It's too costly to become informed. So we are rationally ignorant of most of the ways in which we are being robbed by special interests. But anytime you think about these things, there is a lobby in Washington and in the state capitals out there trying to get special rules that benefit them at the expense of the public. And the way that they work typically is the expense to the public is broadly diffused and fairly small for each person, but when aggregated is a giant pot of money. So if there is $400 million in subsidies, people will spend up to but not exceeding $400 million in lobbying costs to be able to get that subsidy. But none of you are going to spend $400 million to avoid being robbed by the sugar program. Now, the process of civilization has been largely one of taming power. What I'm going to talk about tomorrow is this difficult process of replacing states or transforming states into governments that can actually produce real benefits in the form of governance and the rule of law. But let me end with this thought. And it goes back to this question that was asked me about birth certificates and the way people think about passports. Alexander Rustov is a great German sociologist. Uh, he had been an opponent of Hitler. When Hitler came to power in 1933, he left Berlin. He said, I cannot live in this country. There were many people who did that, who, who saw further than others. Many people thought, he's a crazy person. He'll get defeated in the next election. There wasn't the next election. Uh, so many people were fooled by that, if you remember the time that it happened. Some people said they knew what was going to happen. And uh, Marlene Dietrich was another one, the great actress and singer. But he went to Turkey, and then through years he tried to understand what had happened in Germany. How was possible that in this great land of thinkers or philosophers and poets, as it was called, they generated such a horrifying form of brutal savagery and mass murder and, and mass insanity. He said, how could that have happened? And he wrote, being a German, a gigantic three-volume uh, book called Ortsbestimmung der Gegenwart, his son, Dankwart Rustov, became a professor in the United States, became very Americanized. He said, Americans won't read this. He condensed it down to a mere 1,200 pages uh, of accessible material, which was called Freedom and Domination. And it's about the state, the origin of the state, and the way it has changed our thinking. And he says, all of us, without exception, carry this inherited poison within us, the most varied and unexpected places, the most diverse forms, often defying perception. You have to be alert to it, the way in which our mentality has been shaped by this history of violence in our civilizations. 
All of us collectively and individually are accessories to this great sin of all time, this original sin, a hereditary fault that can be excised and erased only with great difficulty and slowly by an insight into pathology, by will to recover, and by the active remorse of all. To be alert to the way in which our habits, our culture, our civilization have been shaped in ways we often do not perceive by a history of violence. And the history of liberty is shedding that, becoming aware of it, and trying to create social orders that are voluntary and respectful. But with that, we have a short time for some discussion, and I look forward to your reactions. Thank you. Good. Uh, everything obvious to everyone? Okay. Yes, sir. In your category, systemic social control, would you like to comment on a marriage license and some I of the I think that recent... is an interesting example. Uh, I'll disagree ever so slightly with uh, Jeff on this. Um, I think he was right on the question. It's a contractual relationship. Uh, but there are so many legal things that flow from this that are implicated in the law, like family law, custody of children, and so on, that it's not so easy to encapsulate those entirely in contractual relations. Uh, partly, remember, children are not voluntary participants in most families. They just show up from, from their perspective. Uh, they're just here, and they didn't do anything to acquire a set of obligations. And so I think that the legal system, not necessarily the state or the bureaucratic state is implicated in the family structure. Family structure can take many forms, by the way. The one that is a, people are accustomed to think of as the family is not the only way that human families have existed, either geographically, culturally, or across time. So I think, yes, I would say marriage licenses are a part of that, but it doesn't follow that the marriage relationship is easily extricated from the law that makes sense. Yes, sir. Well, I just wanted to make an observation when you talk about uh, decreasing violence. Have you ever come across Lawrence Keeley's book, War Before Civilization? I have not. Sounds well, like he's an anthropologist. It's fascinating. He's an anthropologist, an archaeologist, and he's debunked a prevailing theory that there used to be a peaceful time. Oh, in yes, reality, sir. the archaeological evidence shows that violence was really far more impacting on primitive uh, cultures globally and throughout time that actually a male had a 25 25% of all males were dead of combat even though the uh, the single combat was on small scale multiple minor incidents whereas state level warfare even though it's more dramatic in scale like the Roman Empire less than 4% of all males were involved in combat and less than 2% casualties a dramatic decrease not a good thing but no, that's actually Steven Pinker, so maybe he's relying partly on this. He makes exactly this point. So my, my point was not that there were pacific, wonderful, peaceful, groovy, hippie farmers, and then someone conquered them. The life of human beings in hunter-gatherer groups is, is remarkably violent. I was making a simpler point which is they had to have preceded some kinds of social cooperation that generated surpluses before systematic states. But your point is exactly right. I don't believe in the, this, this view that uh, 
you, you hear it sometimes said that uh, before the Europeans came to America, all the indigenous tribes were just groovy. This is not true. They waged war on each other with astonishing ferocity. Well, we can look at the Aztecs and the Mayans and so on. So it, it, your point is exactly right. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a sister that lived in the area for a long time and uh, was kind of a, very knowledgeable about the D.C. area. And she gave to me one time uh, the origin of the word lobbyist. And I wonder if you know that story. And if The one you... I had heard was they, when members of Congress didn't have houses but lived in hotels because Congress was not full-time, they'd come to Washington, that the ones who wanted to talk, talk to them would hang out in the hotel lobby. Well, I heard it's a variation that uh, it, actually I think this hotel is still here, the Willard Hotel. Is there a Willard Hotel here? Yes, yes. It's uh, that uh, a great uh, deal. Of, many people deals representing are done at the special interests was were always trying to get an appointment with a, you know different legislators and couldn't do it, and they realized that uh, some years ago the congressmen often would, uh, when they finished their day, walk across the street to the Willard Hotel to have a drink in the bar. And they would hang out in the lobby, which is a variation of your story. And therein is the term lobbyist, how all these things get started. I just thought it was kind of interesting. General point is right. Yes, sir. I just wanted to ask about when you were talking earlier about the the theory of the origin of government and the conquest of uh, uh, agricultural people by pastoral people. Whether you were, um, I mean, do you think that's a, a general case where you can explain all, at least most, of the origins of government that way? Because, I mean, I, I've just well, also... Well, I, I distinguish between the state and government, so I'll talk uh, about sorry. that tomorrow. Origin, uh, origin of the state. I've also heard various theories of it, you know, originating uh, from, for example, the the, or, the complex organization of society that, that's necessary for, you know, irrigation, irrigation and agriculture, yes. and also from, like... Let the, me put it this way. Um, there are various kinds of what we could call political organizations that may have originated in other ways, most of those were wiped out by conquerors. So the states that persisted and their descendants, one could argue, have originate, have descended from one kind of conquest or another. So the point is not that you didn't have other kinds of city-states and so on elsewhere, but the ones that persisted were the ones that can be traceable to some act of conquest, which could be indirect. A state originated and then founding another state and so on. This will have to be the last one. Sorry. In your remarks, you implied at various points kind of a hierarchy. I was wondering if you could just clarify a little bit how you see the difference between state, nation, and government. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, tomorrow. Uh, nation is a complex term. It's used in many, many different contexts. It usually means a group of people typically sharing a common language and a sense of being together. So it's a nation if people think it's a nation. Usually, language is, is a, a characteristic of that. Not always. The Swiss have some kind of nationality, although they speak three and a half uh, different languages, the, the, the half being Romance, which is not spoken by very many, most of whom also speak German or uh, some other language. So um, uh, that would be the, the outlier. Uh, it is not the same as the state, because there are many nations that exist in multiple states. This is an issue of the Germans and the, the, today the Russians. Uh, across Africa, we see whole nations were bisected because there were lines drawn on a map in Berlin in 1878, I forget the exact year, when they just divided them up. But there were whole nations, linguistic groups, that got chopped in two. 
So the nation and the state do not necessarily uh, coincide, although the theory is the nation state does that. And I would mention one more point. The nation state has been a source of a great deal of conflict because when we identify the members of our state as the members of our nation, but we have foreign nations among us, they're enemies. They become enemies. And the members of our nation who are residents of the other nation state are resident enemies of that state. And so you think about the history of Europe over the last 150 years, this is one way to think about it. I'll end with one point because my time is out. There's a very good book on exactly this question by a Hungarian liberal, and fortunately it was just translated into English a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called, um, uh, I think the English title, I can't remember it, but his, his name, I read it originally in German, uh, his name is Utvush, E-O with umlaut, T-V-O with umlaut, S. And he was a very important figure in Central European history. And he talked about exactly these questions. And he said, we have to get this straight because this area, if we don't solve it, will become a slaughterhouse. He was exactly right. He was exactly right. And he presented a liberal solution to the nationalities problem. The other one concerned about this was Lord Acton was very worried about the nation state leading to extermination and genocide, which is indeed one of the things it led to. So those, are, those are deep questions. And then governance, very quickly, we have ways of governing ourselves to produce common rules. It doesn't have to be the state, although the state can provide governance. Okay, thank you very much. Uh,